Most of us don't think of our long-term goals as having less and less money and living in smaller and smaller homes and giving more and more of our stuff and ourself away. And I'm not saying that's how it has to look, but most of us don't think that way. We think about always gaining more, getting the next thing, increasing our portfolio, having more of this, more of that, safety, security, comfort, all these things, getting up in our jobs and you know achieving this stuff in our careers. Most of us think about that's just the natural way things go. That's the American way, right? Is always upward, always an upward trajectory. Whereas Christ says quite the opposite. He's always asking us to go lower still. And Jesus himself modeled this. He came as a servant and was always diving deeper and deeper and deeper into the world's pain. Instead of secluding himself from it or removing himself from it or trying to maintain comfort, right, or all these goals, he resisted that temptation in the wilderness. And it says, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We can't imagine for one second that he might be calling us down and lower still. Most of us imagine ourselves and we think about, you know, our lives going forward. It may not be literal for you, but I think you'll understand it conceptually. Most of us imagine ourselves as having servants, not as being servants. All right, so on a scale of one to ten, one is like you're cool with having one as a pet, and you might even like spoon with it when you watch a movie. Uh, ten is, is the spawn of Satan, and even just the mere mention of them sends chills down your spine. And if you see something in a movie or encounter one even anywhere, you're going to have nightmares for a week. How many of you are somewhere on the scale of between zero and five of love when it comes to snakes? Zero to five. Like, you're like, you know what I mean? One to five. Like, you love, you're like, you're cool with them. Like, you know what I mean? Like I said, you'd have a pet. Like, you'd name him something. Like, really? Nobody? All right, how many of you are somewhere between, let's say, five to eight, like, of the terms of fear, you know what I mean? How many people are like, if there's a number higher than 10, like, that's where I'm at. Show of hands, higher than 10. Like, I, wow, okay. Let me grab this thing real quick then. No, I'm just kidding. I don't have one back there. It would have been funny if the whole time Bam was up here, I had a snake back there. But so, so, what's that? <laughs> Were you a 10 plus? I didn't see, I couldn't quite see with the lights. Okay, Tim's a 10 plus, good to know. So if you, you've heard enough of my stories, you know you shouldn't give me that kind of ammo. And so, uh, yeah, exactly. We're tight, man, it's all right. So, so my wife uh, admittedly raised her hand as a 10 plus. And so a couple of summers ago, uh, she was out doing some yard work in our yard and she encountered, uh, I think it was just one day, a garter snake, and kind of, it was definitely a big deal, but it was just one day. Then I think a couple days later, if I remember right, uh, she encountered another one, and I was given a directive, you got to eliminate these. Like, you know, figure out where they're coming from. Well, I did actually know where they were coming from because when I had mowed, I had noticed on the northwest corner of our house where there's a, the downspout and then there's some landscaping blocks that came together and then our house and there's our neighbor's fence. There was a corner and behind these landscaping blocks, just against our house and between the downspout was this little open spot. And I had noticed when I mowed over there, I could look back and I could see like a garter snake in there, like it had made a home, you know, in there. And so I said, I know 
where these are coming from, and I'll take care of it. I said, would you be okay if I, um, you know, get it out of there and I take, we have double, many double lots behind our house, and I said, if I just throw it out into the neighbor's double lots in the wooded area, and she's like, no, it'll find its way back, and I don't want it there. So it, the directive was given, you need to kill and eliminate these snakes, or this snake. So I thought, I'm fine with that. I'm definitely not like a fan of snakes. Like I have friends that have had pets, not cool with that. But I'm also not terrified of them. I just don't like that you always encounter them like in a surprise situation. You know what I mean? So I was like, okay, I don't really like the thought of like killing them, but I'll, I'll do it. You know, I'll take one for the team uh, and I'll do that. And so I had this plan, okay, I'm going to extract the snake and I'll, and I'll kill it. But when I was doing that, I pulled the first brick away because I was going to have to pull these bricks, blocks, whatever you call them, out of the way to get to it. And I pulled the first one away, and I noticed, oh, there's three heads looking at me. So I was like, there's three. So Lincoln and, and our, one of our neighbor's kids that Lincoln was friends with at the time, they just happened to be playing in the yard. And I guys, hey, guys, I'm going to need your help. And so here's what we're going to do. Like, I went back into our shed, and I just grabbed some random garden tools, because that's how I roll. Like, I'm not an expert, so I grabbed a garden weasel. Uh, you know those things? Like, the spiky rolling things seemed like a good idea. I grabbed, like, a dandelion picker, you know what I mean, that has, like, the, this thing. And I grabbed a, sh a shovel, that was for me, and maybe something else. And <laughs> what? What was the, the shovel was for me, like, you know? And I was just like, boom, it's a heavy shovel, sturdy. I was just going to plant that thing down. And so... I was like, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. Uh, and this uh, Lincoln's, his friend's name was Aiden. So I was like, all right, Aiden, you stand here. Lincoln, you stand here. We'll get this triangle formation. I'll pull this back. And when they come out, we're just going to go crazy. We're just going to get them. And so, like, I, you know, and I'm like, again, I'm not like, I don't love them, but I'm not scared. But I also don't like the idea of, like, pulling them back and who knows what they're going to do. So I was kind of pulling one of these, like, you know, holding the shovel. And then, like, I pulled the thing back thinking they're going to move. Nope, they don't move but I did see two more heads. So we're up to five now. And so I'm like, all right, guys, like get, like, get in the athletic position. You know what I mean? Like they teach you in every sport, like get your vessels ready to destroy these snakes. And so finally, after pulling these out, there's a ball, you know? And so I'm like, well, no wonder, you know, we were seeing them. And so uh, finally, finally, I removed the last one that was concealing them and they scatter. You know, they scatter. And I'm like, boom, boom, like slamming the shovel down, trying to like chop their heads off. And Lincoln's taking whatever he had and he's like slamming them. And Aiden's using the garden weasel, like rolling over them, trying to puncture them. And it's surprising like how strong just a garter snake's like skin is because the shovel, I was just trying to chop their heads off, but it was mostly just denting them. And then they were like moving and <laughs> all this kind of stuff. And so they're, and I'm like, guys, that one's getting away. Like get him, boom, you know? And it's just this chaotic, I just wondered like, is anybody watching this, you know? But over the course of, like, I don't know, a couple of minutes, we, we killed all six snakes. They, it was just a hot mess, and I won't go into great details for those of you that don't like that stuff. If I was youth group, I'd go into more detail about the snakes and what they looked like and all this kind of stuff. So we kill all these snakes, these six snakes. And I think Lincoln and Aiden were definitely, like, traumatized a little bit by it, but it's all right. So um, they're good. The, na the, the neighbor moved, so he's, that's fine. He's gone now. So... Um, but <laughs> I don't have to deal with any trauma from that I created for him anymore. He's gone. So, um, so we get these snakes, and then you got to make sure that, like, you know, you know how like they twitch and stuff like that, even if they're still alive. Like Carrie was like, you got to no, make sure those things are dead. 
Like, no, no snake left breathing, you know? It's like when you see in those movies, people have just been, you know, they're basically dead, and people still go around and <laughs> shoot them just to make sure. It's kind of that idea. And so I scooped all six snakes into this shovel, and then I put them in the center of our street and so that cars would run over them and just flatten them. And they did, and it was kind of, it was a big pile of snakes, the flat. This is not a joke. I didn't mean this. It's dead serious. <laughs> Oh, man. Hey, so we're the last week of our series. <laughs> the three enemies of the soul. <laughs> the three enemies of the soul. This is a nine-week series that concludes today. I get the uh, privilege of, of tying up all the loose ends, so to speak. So what I want to do today is just a really brief review of where we've been. Very brief. I don't want to spend much time on that. I encourage you to go back and listen to the other messages if you haven't done so. Uh, spend a little bit of time on review, and then really just hammer home one point, but I'm going to take the rest of our time to do it. It's incredibly important. So let's just do a couple of uh, bits of review here. The first thing that we've talked about, one of the main points we've established in this series is this fact, that you and we collectively are in a war, right? We are in a war, this is a ridiculously important thing to understand. If someone were to say to me, hey, you have a brand new Christian, somebody who has just come to a knowledge of Jesus, they've just decided to believe in Jesus, to entrust their life to him, to follow him, what would you want them to know? Now, there's obviously some theological things I'd want them to understand, but definitely top two, top three things on that list would be the fact that, hey, guys, you're in a war. You are in a war. Make no mistake about it. You are living in a contested area. You are living in a war zone. This is a battle you are engaged in. Accepting Jesus by no means ends the battle. In fact, in a lot of levels, it increases it because it opens your eyes to things you previously weren't aware of, and now you're going to be fighting. So you are in a war. It's super, super important that we understand this and that we do our best to frame our lives in this sense, right, that we are in a war. Number two, something that's equally as important to contextualize this fact that we are in a war is the fact that this war that we are in, it is not, not, all caps, against flesh and blood, right? Scriptures make that abundantly clear. We don't battle flesh and blood, meaning we don't battle people, but principalities and powers and rulers and authorities in high places, meaning it's not flesh and blood, it's demonic spirits, it's demonic influence, it's demonic movements, demonic uh, powers that we battle, right? Now, that doesn't mean that people fundamentally can't be used by the enemy to the point where they become an enemy of you, of, of us and of Christ. The scriptures are clear on that, but our primary battle, the war we're in, is not against flesh and blood, meaning our primary enemies are not people. Can people be our enemies? Yes, they can, but we're called to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, right? And to return hate with kindness and do those types of things. And that's a whole other message we don't need to get into today, but our primary enemies are not people. Next, this war is, so it's not against flesh and blood, but this war is against the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that's what we've been talking about the past nine weeks. We are in a war. It's not against flesh and blood, but it is against the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are not called 
to love any of those. We are called to love our enemies in the flesh and blood sense. So we are not called to love our enemies when it comes to the world, meaning the culture that exists, the flesh, which we're going to talk about some today. And certainly we are not called to love the devil. Quite the opposite, right? So we've established that. Another thing we've established is that the devil's primary tactic, his primary tactic is lies. It was the thing that he used in the garden was lies and deception. And it's the thing that Jesus himself said that the enemy, that the devil has been using since the dawn of time, since the very beginning. He rebukes the Pharisees in John 8, Jesus does, and he says this. He says, you belong to your father, the devil. So he's telling them, you're not of God. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, this is a great line, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We are in a war. It is not against flesh and blood. It is against the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil's primary tactic is lies, and he's been lying and deceiving since long before any of us existed. Last thing in terms of review is this. The problem is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. Now, it's not good to tell lies. We learned that early on, right? But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the devil's primary weapon being lies. When we talk about this battle, this war we're engaged in, it's not a battle or a war with telling lies. It's a battle and a war against living into lies. We believe things about ourselves, about God, about the way that we should be in this world that are deceitful, that are lies of the enemy, and we live into those, and sometimes they're catastrophic in terms of their effect in our lives. Sometimes the collateral damage on those is incredible, and it leads to deep-level brokenness in our relationships with others, in our relationship with, each, with ourselves, in our relationship with the Lord. So the problem is less that we tell lies and far more that we live them, that we've allowed ourselves in some cases to be subjugated to the enemy, that we've allowed ourselves to believe certain things. Now, this isn't as just purely on us because there's our culture sort of perpetuates this and it tells us lies and we think we take those for granted like, oh, of course that's right because we're not understanding the, the Lord's will for our lives. We're not bouncing things off of scripture. We're not understanding what our life is really supposed to look like. So all those things are in review. So the final question of this series, to wrap this thing up, the final question of the series is, how do we win a war that rages against us and seeks to destroy us? Make no mistake about it, the devil wants to destroy you. We're told that over and over and over again. John 10, 10, right? The devil seeks, kills, and destroys. Peter warns us, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Keep in mind, Peter was writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians, and he's warning them to be on their guard because the devil wants to devour them. Just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you're somehow extra protected or extra safe from the enemy, that you can just let your guard down and say, I've got Jesus, and then call it good. No, he's saying you've got to be sober-minded. You've got to be aware of, of those things. Right? He, how, so how do we win a war that rages against us, and how do we defeat an enemy that seeks to destroy us, that has no mercy, that doesn't care what kind of havoc he wreaks in our life, 
that doesn't care what kind of collateral damage there is, doesn't care at all. His single-minded pursuit is to absolutely obliterate you, to mess you up on every possible level. That's a big deal. So we better figure out how do we battle that? How do we go against that tide? So I'm going to give you the answer right now, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about it. How do we win, right, the war that rages against and seeks against us and seeks to destroy us? We die. We die. And I don't mean like at the end of your life die. I mean we die now. So let me just give this disclaimer. This is a pat- topic that I'm incredibly passionate about. Um, think about this thing a lot. Carrie and I talk about it a lot and have for a number of years. And I feel like I'm passionate about it because Jesus was passionate about it. Like he talks about this over and over and over again, and so do the rest of the New Testament writers. In fact, listen to Jesus' most common invitation. He says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The cross was a symbol of death for Jesus' hearers. They understood well the radical implications of such a directive. When he said, take up your cross and follow me, the only thing they would have associated that with was death. That's all that it was. Jesus' call to follow him was a call to die. If not literally, which it was for many of them, it ended up being a literal death than at least figuratively in self-denial. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the most brilliant theologians of the 20th century, famously said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. For Bonhoeffer, this ended up being literal because he was taken captive by the Nazis in World War II, thrown into a prison camp, and eventually was executed for his resistance of the Nazis. He was a pastor who spoke out against the church's affiliation with the Third Reich, and it cost him his life just weeks before that same prison camp was liberated by the Allied forces. So for him, when he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, it was literal for him. But let's be honest about this. When When I say, how do we win this war, and I say, we die, And I quote Bonhoeffer and I say, you know, when Christ bids a man, he calls him, come and die. And when we hear Jesus himself say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We hear it maybe on some level, but it can also sound kind of like that, uh, like that minion, minion-esque gibberish, you know, that the minions speak, where you kind of get a kind of a sense of what they might be saying, but it's just really weird in terms of the dialect and the way that it's coming out, so you kind of are trying to figure it out, but you don't really have a grid for it. You don't really have a context for it. You hear it, but it doesn't necessarily lay in it because it's so foreign to your ears. This sounds crazy to us, this call of self-denial, right? Especially in our modern age, we have this constant, like I call it like this constant IV drip, right? of cultural messaging that we receive through our iPhones and our iPads and our laptops and our televisions. And that constant drip all the time of cultural messaging is telling us over and over and over to do the exact opposite. 
It's not telling us to die. It's telling us to, to live your best life, to live your fullest life, to chase after happiness, to figure out what's going to make you happy and then go after that. You've got to get fulfilled. If you feel something, it's an indicator that it's right and that it's good, and you should pursue that. We hear that all the time. Almost everything we see and we hear is about self-fulfillment, not self-denial. And as a result, many of us can't even fathom a vision of, quote-unquote, the good life that doesn't involve us getting what we want. Think about this for a second. That's a big statement. Many of us can't even fathom a vision of the good life that doesn't involve our getting what we want. We can't imagine, even for one second, that the call for us as Jesus followers is to downward mobility, as opposed to the implied American call to upward mobility. Most of us don't think of our long-term goals as having less and less money and living in smaller and smaller homes and giving more and more of our stuff and ourself away. And I'm not saying that's how it has to look, but most of us don't think that way. We think about always gaining more, getting the next thing, increasing our portfolio, having more of this, more of that, safety, security, comfort, all these things, getting up in our jobs and, you know, achieving this stuff in our careers. Most of us think about that's just the natural way things go. That's the American way, right? Is always upward, always an upward trajectory, whereas Christ says quite the opposite. He's always asking us to go lower still. And Jesus himself modeled this. He came as a servant and was always diving deeper and deeper and deeper into the world's pain. Instead of secluding himself from it or removing himself from it or trying to maintain comfort, right, or all these goals, he resisted that temptation in the wilderness. And it says, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We can't imagine for one second that he might be calling us down and lower still. One thing I like to say is most of us, to kind of put this in perspective, most of us imagine ourselves when we think about you know, our lives and going forward, it may not be literal for you, but I think you'll understand it conceptually. Most of us imagine ourselves as having servants, not as being servants. Most of us imagine ourselves and have been taught to imagine ourselves having servants as opposed to being servants. Your life's dream probably was not, just as an example, was probably not to be like a butler for somebody wealthy right? Is butler still a thing? I don't know where that word came from, but whatever. Like, it, your vision was to, ha- to be the wealthy person that had the butler, right? You really start to think about it and drill down, right? Your vision that you were told was not to move deeper and deeper into under-resourced, impoverished communities. It was to move further and further away from them so you could be safer and safer and you could protect what's yours, that's the vision that most of us have been given. But it, the problem with that is it's not Jesus' vision. That's kind of a big problem. And the problem with that also is that as we do that, as we constantly think about that stuff, it leads us deeper and deeper and deeper into indulging the flesh. We've given ourselves over to the world and the ways 
of the world. Jesus said clearly that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When he washed the feet of those who would abandon and betray him during the Last Supper, he didn't do so as sort of this one-off thing because he was Jesus. Quite the opposite. He actually expected us to follow his example, and he said as much. When he got down and washed the filthy feet of the disciples, he said, if I, your Lord and Messiah, have done this for you, then you must do this for everybody else. It wasn't just, I'm holy, I'm Jesus, I have a halo around my head, I'm God, I'm about to do this. No, he's like, no, I expect you to do the same. I expect you to take the lowly position of a servant and not be shy about washing filthy people's feet. Most of us would be reticent, you know, which means like slow or hesitate. Most of us would hesitate to pray the prayer of the Christian mystic Aaron Weiss who prayed, if I could become the servant of all, no lower place to fall. It's not a prayer most of us probably pray in the morning when we wake up. Usually it's for blessing. It's for increase. It's for more of something. It's for more comfort. It's to be soothed, and look, there's a time and a place for that. But how often do you wake up and pray, this morning, Lord, let me become a servant of all just as you were. If I'm being conformed and created in your image, and you came not to be served but to serve, then I need to serve as well. So this morning and every day from now on, I pray that I want to become the servant of all, no lower place to fall. Drive me to the very bottom if you need to. Anybody prayed that yesterday? I didn't. I did it. So the question becomes, as we talk about all this, what exactly is Jesus calling us to deny? What exactly is Jesus calling us to deny? Let me just clarify. We are to deny ourself. We are to deny ourself, not ourselves. We are to deny ourself, not ourselves. The self in Jesus' call to deny our God-given abilities or the spiritual, I'm sorry, let me say that again. There's a, there we go. The self in Jesus' call isn't to deny our God-given abilities or the spiritual gifts we've been given via the Holy Spirit. You're not supposed to deny those things. You're supposed to use those things for the building up of the church. Right? So if you've been given something, it's not like you're suppressing that. That's from the Holy Spirit. The self Jesus is talking about is akin to our flesh. The flesh, which is the access point of the three enemies' assault on our souls. It's a thing that the enemy plays to the most. James talks about this. He says, when, each, when a man is tempted, he can't say to himself, God is tempting me, because God does not tempt, neither is he tempted. But each man is tempted when his flesh, and I'm paraphrasing here, when his flesh engages with lies, when his flesh engages with desires that are not of Christ. And once his flesh engages with those and starts to give license to those or makes a place for those, then something starts to happen, and all of a sudden, before long, that stuff plays out, and you find yourself living lies. We talked about this earlier. Deceptive ideas. This is how it works. So the ideas come in. The deceptive ideas come in. That's the devil. Those play to disordered desires. That's the flesh. The flesh is the part of us that's not yet sanctified, that's still in process, that still sometimes has one foot in and one foot out when it comes to following Jesus. 
It's the part of us that we're like, man, how can I do this? And then the next day you do that. It's, there's a tug of war, but those ideas play to that side. And then they're normalized, as I talked about earlier, in a sinful society. So it tells you, like, hey, that part of you, like, it's fine. It's okay to indulge that. Like, look, everybody else is literally indulging it. And it used to be called bad, but now it's called good. And so go ahead with that. So it's normalized. It's not just normalized, by the way, in some society that's out there somewhere. It's normalized within the walls of the church oftentimes. We normalize things and call things okay that are not okay. But the reason why is because everybody else is doing it. We don't say it that straightforwardly, but that's the reality of the situation if you really start to look at it. We get a hint of what Jesus means from the Apostle Paul's famous declaration in Galatians 2. He says this, I've been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Clearly, Paul's writing this, so he's still breathing, right? So it's not a literal crucifixion. He's still alive. There's something else going on. What part of Paul was crucified? He gives us the answer a couple chapters later in Galatians. Galatians 5.24, this is a powerful, powerful verse. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have done what? Have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. They have crucified the flesh. They have died. When Carrie asked us to kill those snakes, we didn't want to leave any doubt about the fact that those stinking things were dead. And we go to great lengths, methodically approach stuff, hack them to pieces, make sure there's no ability for them to breathe any longer, then toss them in the street and have cars run over them. It's not a casual approach to this. It's not a like, I hope they die if I kind of hit them once and like let them run off and maybe they'll die from the wound somewhere. There's a high level of intentionality that goes on, and we went through a plan and made every effort to ensure that those things were dead, 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 and they were never coming back. They were absolutely destroyed. And this is what Paul is talking about when he says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He's saying, you've taken a look at this stuff, and you haven't been casual about it. You haven't been laissez-faire. You haven't been like, I'll get to it someday. Oh, that's no big deal. Oh, that's not really that dangerous. No, you've identified the flesh and how dangerous it actually can be in the war that we're in. And if you allow yourself to give in to the enemy's temptations, the sort of havoc that can wreak in your life and the destruction that can cause, and you say, no, I'm going to take a methodical, intentional, deliberate, well-thought-out approach to absolutely destroying this stuff to crucifying it. Crucifixion, by the way, wasn't just the nailing of the prisoner or the criminal to the cross. Most of you probably understand that was the very end of it. There was a whole thing that went before that that ensured that it was going to be painful, that it was going to be torturous, that it wasn't going to go quickly, but they were absolutely punishing that. How often do you deal with your flesh in the same way? How often are you like, look, flesh, You've been messing with me for too long. I'm coming up with a plan, and I'm going to absolutely obliterate you, and I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to be ruthless with this plan. Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. Don't even give it space to breathe. 
When's the last time you thought of that and you sat down and made a plan about how you were going to make sure you destroyed it? Maybe you identified areas and where you're giving into it. You see areas in your life where the enemy has a foothold, and you're like, no more, no more. This has done its work long enough. I'm crucifying this. Paul says in another place, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, right? He didn't say keep it on life support. He didn't say, you know, keep the keys to all the old locks just in case someday, right? No, he says put it to death, crucify it, and he says that he has done that. And, guys, you've got to hear this statement. This is a huge statement. Think about this. He doesn't say some of those who. He doesn't say a few of those He doesn't say most of those. He just flat out says in Galatians 5.24, which we just read, those who belong to Christ have done this. That should cause us a bit of healthy fear, shouldn't it? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That should make us think, man, I kind of want to make sure I belong to Christ. Do I fit into this category? Have I begun that? Have I been as ruthless with my flesh as Paul directs us to have, as I've been as ruthless with my flesh as Lincoln and I and Aiden were with those snakes. Have we made sure that's it? Paul had died to his flesh, and in doing so, as the scriptures tell us, he had come alive. He had come alive when he had done that. He experienced life like he'd never known it. He had unbelievable freedom. I absolutely love, this is one of the verses I've thought about a lot in the past probably six months. I absolutely love what he says just a few lines later in Galatians. I love this. He says, Galatians 6.14, and it's on the screen. May I never boast, may I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think we have that on the screen. Maybe not. Nope, we don't. May I never boast, my bad. May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and all this part, and I to the world. Through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. What's he saying there? He's elaborating on what he said earlier in Galatians 2 and then Galatians 5. He's saying, I've been crucified, right? Like I have, let me read it one more time. May I never boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me. So he's crucified, right, the world in his life, the flesh in his life, and he says an eye to the world. What does that mean, an eye to the world? It means this, that he has become so focused on Christ, so focused on the cross, so focused on living the way that Jesus has wants him to live, so bent on heavenly goals and the things that last forever, treasure in heaven, not earthly stuff, so much of that in his mindset, in his lifestyle, and all the things that he does reflect that so much that not only is the world dead to him, but he's dead to the world, meaning the world wants nothing to do with him anymore. They're like, that, dude's, that dude is way too far gone. That guy is a Jesus freak. That guy is a fanatic. That guy is weird. Like, doesn't he understand? Like, I get that's cool, like, you know, that he has some religion, but man, he takes it really seriously, you know, and that's just kind of strange. He's like, they don't even want anything to do with me because their value system and my value system are so diametrically opposed. They're so far apart from each other. They're not even in the same ballpark. They don't even care about me anymore, man. That's a weird thing to think, but it would be cool if the world thought the same about us. Like those people, they're just, what in the world are they doing? 
they're like selling possessions and sharing with those in need and like they don't really care about trying to build up their own images and their own successes and their own status and they don't worry about like all the sort of social mores of their day of this day they're just radical in their love radical in their generosity radical in their forgiveness like and we're just done with them. Like, we don't even, we're not even going to bother anymore. It's a waste of our breath. That's a beautiful place to be. It may not feel beautiful as you go through the process, but for Paul, he understood, like, when he broke through, this is an unbelievable place of communion with Jesus. And it, caught, and it comes through death. A deep happiness. Here's a truth for you. For those of you that are picture takers. Truth, a deep happiness and calm spirit come over those who have died to self. Guys, I, this is, seriously, this is something that, to take a picture of, to think about. A deep happiness and a calm spirit come over those who have died to self. Why is that? Because their desires have been put to death. <laughs> or at least been put in their proper place below God. As a result, they have been set free. This is a great line. They've been set free from the domination of want. One of my heroes, and I'm going to talk about him a little bit more here in a little bit, actually. Well, pretty, pretty shortly, actually. He had this, uh, Rich Mullins is his name, and uh, he had this whole thing where he just didn't, he, uh, didn't care about possessions, didn't care about that stuff, cultivating his image. I heard a quote recently that said, there was nobody I ever met who cared less about his image than Rich. A bunch of musicians just got together a few weeks ago and recorded an album of his songs. He died a long time ago, but I heard this interview. And there's this famous part where, you know, he's kind of coming up the musical world in Nashville, and, but he just doesn't want to play by the rules or play, by, play those games. He's not concerned with that stuff. And then and one of his producers says, like, what do, you, what do you call a guy who doesn't fear anyone but God and doesn't want anything? The other guy says, what? And he goes, Dangerous. What do you call someone who doesn't fear anyone but God and wants nothing out of this world? Dangerous to the enemy, right? And Rich made no provision for the flesh. He put to death his earthly desires at his peak when he was making millions and millions of dollars. Could have done whatever he wanted, and he had tried that life for a while, had bought himself a house and a motorcycle and all these things, and realized it was just hollow and empty and deceptive, and he was going to give himself over if he wasn't careful, so he got rid of all of it, and he called his manager, and he said, here's what I want you to do. Do some research. Find out for me what's the median salary in the United States for like a, like a laborer, not, you know, not just period, but for like a laborer. What is that? Figure out what that is, and that's what I want you to pay me. The rest of it, put in a bank account, don't want to know how much money I have, systematically get rid of it and give it away. He started living off of that when he could have had any life, and he had, his heart was broken for Native Americans, the Navajo Reservation in Arizona, so he humbled himself at the peak of his career and went back to college and sat in this little classroom and got a degree in musical education so he could go and move to the Navajo Reservation and teach Native American kids music. And at the end of his life, he died very young at my age, actually, at 44, in a tragic accident, but at that age, he was living in a Hogan, if you know what that is, in the Native American reservation. And even though he was living off of laborers' wages when he could have lived different, they still found a whole bunch of money that he hadn't spent. And he had a policy, too, that if he was wearing a shirt and you went up to him and you were like, Rich, I like that shirt, he'd instantly take it off and give it to you. Because he didn't want any, he just didn't want that to make any provision for the flesh. 
So if he was getting any life from somebody complimenting on that, he would just take it off and get rid of it. Now, you might think that's a little bit radical. Maybe it is, but I like it. I'd rather lean too much on the radical side than I would on the other side. So for Jesus, here's the truth. For Jesus, the cross is the entry point into life to the fullest of the kingdom. It's the entry point. It's not the end point. We think of it as the end. It's not the end. The cross is the entry point into life to the fullest in the kingdom. If we're going to experience the abundant life Jesus asked of us, he tells us clearly what we need to do. It's how we step into life, we die. That's how we step into life. If anyone wants to save their life, meaning make more of themselves, they'll lose it, Jesus says repeatedly. But they're willing to lose themselves, to lose their life, to become the servant of all, they'll find it. That's not usually a promise we have on our refrigerator magnets. But it's a promise if you're willing to engage in it. It's how we step into life, we die, but it's important to note that the reciprocal is also true. The refusal to deny ourselves is the entry point of the devil into our own many kingdoms where we reign supreme. Our desires, our wants, the flesh, the things that we want, those reign supreme, and that is a horrible kingdom to live in. That is not a good place to live if you've lived there, if you're living there today, because if your God becomes your image, you'll never have it perfected. If your God is money, you'll never have enough money. If your God is social status, you'll never have enough. If your God is beauty and appearance, you'll never be good-looking enough. All of those things, you be, when you reign supreme in your own kingdom, it's a place of absolute disaster. When we reject the cross, we open our souls to enemy infiltration. There are so many so-called Christians who want Jesus, who want Christ without the cross. They want to experience the power of the resurrection, but they refuse to embrace the suffering and the death that necessarily go before it. Right, Paul says this, he says, I want to know the power of Christ. And then he gives the key, he says, I've got to experience his sufferings and join with him in his death first so that I might then experience the power of the resurrection. There aren't a lot of formulas in the Bible, but that's one. If you want to know the resurrection power, you need to embrace the suffering and the death that go before it. You know, what's interesting, and what's not coincidental, is we find the invitation, catch this part, okay? Getting closer to being done. Closer, I didn't say close, but closer. Catch this, we find the invitation to come and die in all four gospels. Why is that important? Because it's literally the only teaching we find in all four gospels. The only teaching we find in all four Gospels is to come and die. And interestingly, we actually find it twice in Luke in two different places, which means that it was recorded five times, but at least in one Gospel, Jesus taught it twice to the crowds in two different places, and Luke felt it important enough, even though he was limited in what he was writing in its scope, he included that same thing twice when it was already, you know what I mean? It was going to be included. And John, who wrote after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and was trying not to be repetitive, still included that in his Think about that. It's the only teaching that appears in all four Gospels. 
the only teaching is if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The only teaching that's repeated in all four Gospels, if a man wants to save his life, he will lose it. If he wants to lose his life, he will save it. This is not an idea. This is an important thing. That's not an idea that's on the periphery of discipleship. That's somewhere out there, right? That's like an optional thing. It's at the very center. It is the, the absolute core of it. Now, it's not talked about a lot because you can see why this isn't necessarily overly popular. The theologian, pastor, famous reformer John Calvin who in 1536 wrote The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is a 1,000-plus page treatise on the Christian life, considered one of the greatest works of theology in history, aside from the scriptures. He was once asked to summarize the entire spiritual journey of following Jesus. 1,000-page treatise, right? The Institutes of the Christian Religion, this all-encompassing, broad-scope thing. Pastor Calvin how would you describe the Christian life, the spiritual journey following Jesus? He said this, self-denial. Self-denial. Here's a truth. To say yes to Jesus' invitation is to say no to a thousand other things. We don't talk about this probably as much as we should or think about it, and I'm not saying you, I'm saying I don't necessarily always think about this as much as I should. To say yes to Jesus' invitation is to say no to a thousand other things. To say yes to Jesus is to say no to living by my own definition of good and evil. To spending my time and my money however I want. Here's some big words and I'll explain them. To the hyper-individualistic, narcissistic, hedonistic, therapeutic pursuits of our age. What does that mean? To say yes to Jesus and to say no to living by our own definition of good and evil. To spending my time and money however I want. You're saying also no to an unhealthy focus on yourself. We don't just live in an individualistic society. We live in a hyper-individualistic society, right? There's that like um, place out in Waukee that all the youth group kids get drinks from. It's called Hyper. Never in my life did I think I'd see a day where there was a self-standing store that only sold energy drinks with stupid amounts of caffeine in them, right? It's hyper. It's like 200 milligrams of caffeine in this little thing, which is like, what, two and a half, three cups of coffee, just all jammed together. So think about that when it comes to if you're individualistic, if you're living that way, but then you're hyper-individualistic. Like you're shaking, you're like frenetic, you're like in frenzy all about you, right? That's our culture, Right, narcissistic, you know what that's like. It's just staring into your own reflection over and over again and thinking about how you look and just being so unbelievably concerned with that. Hedonistic is the belief that pleasure is the greatest good and the deepest and most meaningful of life's pursuits. So anything that doesn't give you pleasure is to be avoided. It's pleasure-seeking, pain-avoiding which at times is, I'd rather have pleasure than pain if we're just being honest. But this is an out-of-line, out-of-order desire where you're just going after that. Therapeutic, our culture is so much about, oh, I just want, I just, I had a hard day. I just need a bubble bath and a glass of wine and to watch whatever Netflix show. And it's, all, it's always soothing ourselves. We're always soothing ourselves and rewarding ourselves 
like for the life that we live and the difficulties, right? It's just constantly pursuing more comfort and more pleasure and putting ourselves in deeper and deeper positions, right, to experience that as we go forward. The older I get and the harder I work, the more I just want to be soothed and I want to be comforted and I want to be massaged and I want to be made to feel good all the time, right? Saying yes to Jesus says no to living with those things in mind. It's not bad to have those things come along, but they should not be an end goal, for you or a primary pursuit. This is the last kind of chunk. To say yes to Jesus is to simultaneously renounce our idols. To say yes to Jesus is to simultaneously renounce our idols. You don't mix things together. You can't serve two gods for you will hate one and you will love the other. Pastor Jordan talked last week about syncretism, which is a fancy way, a fancy term that just means you're worshiping more than one God, and those gods have competing opposing goals. I had a friend that was a missionary in Haiti, and he pastored a church as a part of that, and they had trouble with people in their congregation who would come and accept Jesus and would worship on Sunday mornings and praise Jesus, but then they'd literally go home and sacrifice a goat in a voodoo ritual. That's syncretism, Right? They understood, they believed one thing and they, they also believed another and they were kind of trying to like cover their bases and, and do all that stuff, but you can't do that. You're renouncing your idols. Now, most of us aren't gonna leave here this morning. Hopefully none of you are gonna leave here this morning and go back and sacrifice a goat to voodoo gods, right? And we can laugh at that and we're like, how ridiculous is that? I can't believe they do that, la, 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 all that kind of stuff. But we don't understand, I don't think, what idols are. Maybe that's a very overt and obvious one, but here's what an idol is. An idol is anything that takes priority in your life above your devotion to Jesus. We got this definition up on the screen. An idol is anything that takes priority in your life above your devotion to Jesus and anything that, here's the key, at the mere mention of giving it up, your anger flares and your panic buttons go off. You wanna know what idols are in your life? It's not hard to recognize. What is it that you get angry about, right? Where do your panic buttons go off if there's even the mere suggestion that you might give that up, you know, in, in lieu of devotion to Jesus? Is it your debit and credit card? The way you use that to maybe soothe yourself in certain situations? Is it your entertainment habits? Is it a romantic relationship that's not honoring to God? Is it your carefully cultivated wardrobe and the image that you've maintained? Is it your eating habits? Ability to just be gluttonous and do whatever you want whenever you want? How about, our, how about your kids' activities? Or youth sports? One question I routinely ask people in terms of idol identification is something like this. We'll just, whatever it is, right? Let's just say, let's just, I'm gonna pick on this and some people are gonna hate me. It's all right. So, people routinely, what I wanna know is if you miss church for, we'll say, your kid's soccer game all the time, how often is your kid missing a soccer game for church? If it's always church that goes out the window in lieu of the soccer game, and never is the soccer game that goes out the window in lieu of church, that's an idol. That's an easy one, but it's an idol. 
you're like, well, church, it's just church. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But what's the, it's not just church. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian, but any Christian I know that takes Jesus seriously goes to church and prioritizes it and makes it a big thing and understands the importance of it. It's where the Mormons have us destroyed. You know that? For all, for all the issues with the Mormon church, that's not even a question in their minds. If something's on Sunday, it ain't happening. They're, they're, they're spending all day in church. That's just one. These next two slides are hugely important to catch as we get to the end. Many followers of Jesus don't yet realize, this is a huge one. Many followers of Jesus don't yet realize that the cross isn't just something Jesus did for us. It's something we do with him. Think about that. It's not just something that Jesus did for us. It's something we do with him. That Jesus died for our sins through the cross is central to the gospel. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And here's the other slide I said. These are the two most important ones to the end. Jesus didn't die just so we don't have to. He died to teach us how to die. How to follow him through death and into life. Jesus talks about this candidly again in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. I'm repeating this again. But whoever loses their life from me will find it. The word life here can be translated in other, some translations, yours might even say it, soul. Whoever wants to save their soul will lose it. Whoever loses their life from their soul from me will find it. It's kind of a weird translation, I understand, but what he's doing is warning us about the gravity of our decision to practice self-denial or pursue self-fulfillment. And here's what you have to understand. The impact of that decision on our souls, he's not talking here just about eternity. If you understand this in the original language, he's not talking about you'll lose your soul in the sense of you won't go to heaven someday. He's talking about you will lose your soul, you will lose your life here and now on this earth in this moment. How many people do you know who have compromised, who have pursued self-fulfillment, who have done whatever it took stepping on people to get to the top or have pursued happiness and their lives are an absolute disaster? And why do we say, what do we say? They've sold their soul. It's not for eternity, although it probably is there too. He's saying in the here and the now. Tim, why don't you guys go ahead and come up as we get ready to close. For Jesus, you have two choices. Option A is this. You deny yourself, or I'm sorry, you deny Jesus and you follow yourself. Option A You deny Jesus and you follow yourself. C.S. Lewis said, there are two kinds of people in this world. The first kind are those who pray to to God, your will be done. Father, your will be done. And those who God tells, your will be done. Some people say to God, your will be done. And some people God says to them, your will be done. Because they're just denying. Option B is you deny yourself and you follow Jesus. Those are the two options. And the results You losing your life or saving it? According to Jesus, those are your options. Strong statement as we almost close here. Either you follow him or you don't. Either you follow him or you don't. Either you are for him or you are against him. Either you gather, these are Jesus' words, either you gather or you scatter. Either you are his friend 
or his enemy. It says anyone who makes themselves a friend of this world has become an enemy of God. That is, those are strong words. There's no neutral ground. You follow him or you don't. Either you're for him or you're against him. Either you gather or you scatter. It's heavy stuff. This obviously requires radical trust in Jesus. Belief that he wants what's best for us. Not that just that he wants it, but that he knows what's best for us, that we can surrender those definitions to him, that we can surrender the leading of our life to him, that we believe deeply in his love for us and we love him and it says perfect love casts out all fear. Let me close with this really brief, really brief story. 17th century Puritans were being persecuted by the politicized Church of England because they were radical Jesus followers, the Puritans were. And they were routinely thrown into prison and subjected to obviously horrific conditions as they usually awaited uh, their torture or death. And sometimes they were tortured in between before they were eventually uh, killed. But the Puritans developed this prayer that they prayed most every day because they rarely received much food. And when they did, it was usually just what you'd imagine, some kind of you know older, crusty type of bread and a bit of water. But they understood their life wasn't for this world, that they weren't trying to exalt themselves. They were trying to become the servant of all with no lower place to fall, and they'd probably fall into that place. So each day when they received their little bit of bread and their little bit of water, they would, if they could, within cells, they would say together as they, before they ate it, all this and Jesus too. All this and Jesus too. In other words, they gave thanks, their gratitude. We've got this bread and this water and we have Jesus. What do you call someone who doesn't fear anyone but God and doesn't want anything from this world? Dangerous. What do you call someone who's in prison awaiting their death, their torture, and they have a little bit of bread and a little bit of water, and they say, all this in Jesus too. We've got it all. You call them dangerous. You call them holy. First Timothy 6, 6 through 8 says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. If we have food, and we have clothing, we will be content with that. So how do we fight the war for our soul in a secular age? How do we defeat the three enemies of the world, the flesh and the devil? We die. And then, as is promised, we really, 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 maybe for the first time, begin to live. Thanks for listening.